As we go through today, we are continuing, like I said, our messages in the Psalms. And what we're going to be looking at today are, again, why do we do this? Why do we look at the Psalms? Well, um, Chris brought out some really good points last week. And one of the things that we need to understand about the Psalms is what are they? They are a collection of lyrical poems. Now, honestly, when you read them, a lyrical poem is different than other types of poems. It's not going to be roses or red, violets or blue. Things don't rhyme. But it is written in poetry form. And so you'll see, too, when we talk about it being lyrical poetry, it also lends itself to working in worship as in psalm or as in songs or in hymns. But also we need to understand that it's a composite work. One individual did not write the book of Psalms. There are many authors in Psalms. You have priests, you have kings, you know, you have a little bit of everything in there. David wrote, <coughs> excuse me, King David wrote a lot of the Psalms. The Psalms that we're going to look at today are Psalms that David wrote. But this is what you get when you open up to the book of Psalms. Now, with all that said, why is it important that we spend time looking at these? You know, these aren't like the teachings of Paul where you find out, you know, what it means to be a believer or, you know, how you relate to another person. This is a completely different type of literature. And it's not the only poetic type of literature that we have in the Old Testament. We also have um, the book of Proverbs. We have Ecclesiastes. They all kind of fit into that genre. But this one's very unique in the way it is structured with lyrical poetry. But what we see in the Psalms is a, a picture of human experience. We see the psalmist inspired by God to write from a place in his or her heart about what they are going through, what they are experiencing. And that goes back again to that question and answer thing because we all experience stuff in our walk with Christ. If you're a Christ follower, that I believe God can use in some way to help relate to another individual whether that individual is struggling with something, whether that individual is dealing with just something they've never dealt with before, we're able to take our experiences and hopefully have a relationship with other folks and be able to pour those experiences into other people. And sometimes it's negative stuff. I don't know about you guys. I've had bad things happen in life. Hopefully you haven't. Uh, I've also had good things happen in life, and we can learn from all of those. So we get this picture of the human experience. We also get this art stirs emotion. The book of Psalms are a form of art. And I don't know how you feel about art. Uh, two months ago, I think, Don and I had the opportunity to go to this exhibit that's over, um, I can't remember the name of the road. It's near Johnson C. Smith, that area down in Charlotte. It's in an old warehouse, but it's reproductions of the paintings on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. It was a really neat experience. Uh, to go in and to be able to stand no farther than I am from the TV to these huge re recreations of, you know, the creation of Adam or, you know, Michelangelo, was it Michelangelo? Yeah, his um, idea of what, you know, these prophets looked like or what King David looked like, you know, and it stirs emotions. It gives an opportunity to reflect on things that we might not normally think about when we go through things like the Psalms. So it, that art stirs things up in us and then also... It's organizing worship. It is a collection of lyrical poems that were used in a lot of instances as the hymns of that day. Uh, so they were used in worship. And understand, everybody didn't have a hymnal that they could pull out. They didn't have projection screens where they could read the words. So these were used in place of that 
in a way that could bring people together in what is always important in the life of the church, corporate worship. There is a reason we come together on Sunday mornings, to join together, not to check off a box and say, oh God, be proud of me, I went to church today. I mean, and I, you laugh, but in a group this size, there's somebody, and I'm not trying to call you out or make you feel bad, but you're going to leave this place thinking, okay, God, you're happy with me because I went to church today. Not what it's about, folks. Reel it in. So keep those things in mind as we go through what we're looking at today. And again, it's called the Read Your Bible series. And the purpose of that, as we said, is to get folks to read their Bible. I think we might should add, get you to read your Bible on a regular basis. That's the important part of that. But there are many different processes that you can go through or approaches to reading your Bible. One of the ones that we talk about quite often in this series is the SOAP acronym. And Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. Not going to touch on these a whole lot in this point, but obviously if you're going to study your Bible, that scripture part's important. You've got to have scripture for that. The observation section. As you read through whatever passage of scripture it is that you're looking at, what are you learning from it? What are you picking out from it? Uh, we are going uh, leaving tomorrow morning, driving to Kentucky to go to the ark experience with my father-in-law and my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law and my daughter and my nephew. It's going to be fun. Pray for us. Um, <clears throat> that ark's pretty tall, isn't it, Kevin? Can you access the outside decks? Okay, I'm not going to throw myself off of anything. But um, one of the things I've looked at when I've read about going to this ark experience, it says, before you attend, reread the biblical account of Noah's flood. I've read that story I don't know how many times. But if I read that this afternoon, I'm assured that there will be observations in that reading through that I did not get the first hundred times I've read that story or saw it on the flannel graph when I was in school or anything. The observations are important. What do you do with the observation? Application. How does this apply to my walk with Christ? Sometimes those are very direct applications. Okay, this is a, this is a behavior I need to change. This is an attitude I need to work on. This is a, I hate to use the term, mechanical part of the faith that I need to be better at, whether it's witnessing or worshiping or you know something like that or maybe it's just hey I learned something here that enriches my understanding and my relationship with my Heavenly Father and then finally but not finally prayer pray about what you learn but now here's the one thing I, I really believe obviously scriptures got to come before observation because you can't make observations about it if you haven't read it you can't make applications if you haven't observed it and read it this one doesn't have to be at the end. In fact, I highly recommend that it not always be at the end. Sometimes it might, you might want to put it up here at the top and pray about what you're getting ready to read. Uh, if you're stuck on the observation part or stuck on the application, maybe pray about that part. So just know that that P can go anywhere throughout that. So with all that introduction said, let's look at the type of Psalms we're going to examine briefly today. Three types, and they're all related to each other. You've got royal Psalms enthronement psalms and imprecatory psalms i love the last word imprecatory that's just fun to say and if you are like me you probably had no idea or have no idea what the word imprecatory means i didn't until i took a class in graduate school that the professor explained it to me and we spent a lot of time talking about imprecatory psalms i promise you you're going to like imprecatory psalms but you're not going to like them for the way that you think you're going to like them when I first tell you what they are because we're going to deal heavily with application and observation there. 
and prayer. Because remember we said you can pray the Psalms. The imprecatory Psalms are not going to be Psalms. You need to be praying. We'll talk about that in a moment. So these are all interconnected through the idea of kingship in Israel. So as we think about that, one of the things that we're going to learn as we go through these is that these Psalms help us understand the person and nature of God. And if we are honest as believers a lot of times, maybe our perception of how we think God is compared to how God really is is skewed in some ways. Some ways that's good. Um, I think one of the things that really determines your view of God as Heavenly Father has a lot to do with what type of earthly father you have. And I have a wonderful earthly father. He, he was my hero throughout life, so that made it easier for me to view my heavenly father as someone who loves me and cares about me and is my hero of all time. But if you didn't have that good kind of relationship, then your, your understanding of the nature of God as father may be slightly skewed. So as you look at things like these royal psalms, especially these enthronement psalms, then you might get a better understanding of what God as God the Father is really like. So understanding the person and nature of God is going to be a very important part of what we look at today as we go through these three different types of psalms. Like I said, the first ones that we're going to deal with are the royal psalms. Most of these were written by King David. They, there are at least 11 of them throughout the book of Psalms. And they have as their life setting some event in the life of the pre-exilic Israelite kings. Okay, what does that mean? It, it, it means it's dealing with some event in the life of one of the kings of Israel before the Babylonian exile. Uh, if you're not familiar with what the Babylonian exile is, you know what you can do to learn more about that? Read your Bible. It's a simple thing, little plug-in for other parts. You don't just have to stick to Psalms. You can read any part of it. It's legal. Um, but as life settings, what type of life settings? Coronations, feast days, festivals, birth of a child victory in battle. Any of these things could be covered in these royal psalms written from the king's perspective. And so with that in mind, let's jump in and take a look at the very first one that we're going to look at today. And it's Psalm 72. And this again is written by David. If you're curious about which version of the Bible I use most of the time, and I encourage you always to read the one, the translation that works best for you, Holman Christian Standard Bible is the one that I use most of the time. That's what the HCSB means down there in the corner. But Psalm 72, God, give your justice to the king and your righteousness to the king's son. He will judge your people, he will judge your people with righteousness and afflicted ones with justice. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people and the hills, righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted among the people, help the poor, and crush the oppressor. What we see here, and that there's more to that psalm than just the verses that I brought out because I, some of these can get lengthy and I didn't want to be like it was uh, teaching through Psalms 119. So please, if you get a chance this afternoon, go back and read the rest of that. But what we see in this small part that we've read is King David writing a psalm about the time of his coronation when he was made king of Israel. And remember, he followed King Saul. And so David had a pretty good idea in his mind of what a bad king would look like. I mean, if you, if you go back and you look, in fact, we did a Read Your Bible series about David a few years ago. 
David had a relationship with Saul. Saul's son Jonathan was one of David's best friends, so he spent a lot of time around Saul. He played the harp for Saul. Saul was king when David killed Goliath. There was some animosity there because people started liking David more than they liked uh, King Saul, and there's speculation that King Saul might have been bipolar. There's one instance where David's sitting there playing the harp, and Saul picks up his spear and chunks it at David's head. That's not something you want to happen when you're playing music. Ask anybody on the praise team. Um, <clears throat> So, from this, like I said, we see this prayer of David leading into or reflecting back on his coronation, and we see him asking or petitioning God for things, uh, praying for him to follow God's will. And if you go in there and look, you see he also prays that his son will follow God's will because he understood what the line of succession would be within this kingly relationship. But he also prays for the land and the people to be prosperous. And we see, as we go through this, we see that... Uh, go to the next slide there. Uh, here we see God as the one who appoints leaders. David understood David was where he was, not because David had won battles, not because you know some prophet had come out and poured oil on his head one day. He wasn't king because he was the son of Jesse. He was the king because God chose him to be the king. And if you don't believe that God has a plan for your life, read your Bible. Because, and, and I'll tell you, my reasoning for saying God has a plan for your life is not that verse in Jeremiah, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. That, okay, I, it, it makes my skin crawl when I see that on a t-shirt or a plaque. Because if you understand that verse... God did have a plan for Israel, and that's what that passage of Scripture was talking about, was his plan for the nation of Israel. And that plan didn't come into pass for like two or three more generations. The nation of Israel went through a lot of bad stuff before that plan was completely fulfilled there. But how do I know God has a plan for your life and for my life? Because God had a plan for David. Because God had a plan for Paul. Because God had a plan for Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, you know, all those guys. And if God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, if God is not a respecter of persons, if God doesn't love you more than he loves me or me more than he loves you, if he has a plan for you, then he has a plan for me. Amen. So you can rest assured that if... And now, side note, are you following the plan? That's not up to God. Uh, like I was telling you, we're getting ready to go on vacation tomorrow, and we're driving to the Ark Experience up in Kentucky. You know how many ways there are when you punch in to your maps? How many ways you can get to the one place we're going in Kentucky? A lot. Uh, and I'm that planner guy that has to know which route that we're going to take. Um, does God have a plan for, you know, which specific route I take tomorrow? I don't know. You know, we'll get together, and we'll hold hands, and we'll pray. God, show us which map route you want. No, we're not going to do that, but... I know that God has that overall driving purpose. And we can choose to follow it, or we can choose to not follow it, but one thing is going to be the result of the end of that. Whether we follow or not, at the end of the day, God is going to still be God. And Christ is still going to be Savior, and it's up to us to be where we need to be because in spite of His love for us, or actually because of His love for us, He will not force us to be where we're not willing to be. But David realizes that God had a plan, that God appoints leaders, that God gives guidance to the leaders, 
still up to them to follow. And not just for leading, but leading justly. We live in a day today where if you polled, especially the average American, do you trust ex-politician? I don't know that there's anybody that would have a good favorable rating with that. And I think that in a lot of cases that non-favorable rating is well deserved based on the way things are playing out in our country right now. But this is not a political thing. It's a message. But still, here David realized if I'm going to be a just king, I've got to be a just king that allows God to guide me. And he also realized that God was the source of prosperity for the nation of Israel. And we get all that just from those little four verses that we look at in that passage of Scripture. And like I said, there are 11 different royal psalms. If you don't know which ones they are, look on Bible Gateway, Wikipedia, any of that. It, you, there's plenty of resources that can show you which ones those are if you want to do a more thematic study of just those royal psalms. The next ones we have are the enthronement psalms. And really out of the three that we're looking at today, these are probably my favorite. I'm not going to spend the most time on those. We're going to deal with imprecatory psalms more than anything. But with the enthronement psalms, we see they exalt God as king. And they emphasize his rule over humans and creation. Uh, had the opportunity yesterday to go off with some friends and ride bikes for a long period of time in the hot sun and then jump in the car and drive up to Black Mountain, North Carolina. Uh, get to Black Mountain, it rains, we get poured on in the rain. But when we're leaving out of Black Mountain, one of the most beautiful rainbows that I've seen in a long time, just stretching from mountaintop to mountaintop. Just absolutely gorgeous. It's just one of those things you look at that and you go, oh man, God, that's awesome. You know, because that's your promise to us. There's a reason that rainbow is up there. And just from a perspective of a person that really loves being out in the world, being outside, being in nature, it was just beautiful. I love that. And that is there because God is the king of creation. So that's, as we deal with these enthronement psalms, you see the psalmist who is usually still King David, or one of the leaders, looking at the earthly king, but then taking and doing a comparison contrast between the earthly king and going basically like, okay, I know you're a king, but you're human. God's the ultimate king, and he's ultimately control of everything, and he's just freaking awesome. So we see that in time and time again. So look at this psalm that deals with an enthronement psalm, Psalm 99. And if you're looking, Psalms 95 through Psalms 101 are all enthronement psalms. There are others, but those are the primary ones. And it's interesting in that section because those are all grouped together because a lot of times they're, you know, here's one and here's one and here's one. But that's one section that you do get where you get the same type psalm, one right after the other. Psalm 99, 1 through 9. The Lord reigns, exclamation point. Not just a matter of fact, but something to be excited about. Let the people tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. If you're not familiar with what cherubim are, that's another word, fancy word for angels. Let the earth quake. Yahweh is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awe-inspiring name. He is holy. The mighty king loves justice. You have established fairness. You have administered justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Bow in worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was also among those calling on his name. They called to Yahweh and he answered them. He spoke to them in a pillar of a cloud. They kept his decrees and the statutes he gave them. 
Lord our God, you answered them, you were a forgiving God to them and an avenger of their sinful actions. Exalt the Lord our God, bow in worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. We see here in this, whoops, back up one, that the psalmist recognizes, the psalmist recognizes as the nature of God in relation to mankind. We see in all this, in this, these nine verses, we see that God's holy, he's just, he's fair, he's forgiving, and he is the avenger, not in the Marvel Universe type thing, even though I love those movies, but you know, not in that way. But he, he is the avenger, the avenger of what? Himself. And that in, all, in and of itself is kind of an awesome concept when you sit on that for just a little bit, but we see as David writes all this stuff that he recognizes in nature the awesomeness and the power of God. And there are Psalms that fit in this enthronement thing that talk about creation and stuff like that. But to me, and I was having a conversation yesterday about this. I know you have trouble in believing this, but I'm a little hyperactive. Um, I, last count, I think I have 24 ounces of coffee in me already this morning. Um, but the way my mind works... I have a lot of trouble being in the moment. I think that's one of the reasons that I love speaking, public speaking, because times like this force me to be in the moment. I can't be thinking about what I'm having for lunch or you know, things like that. I've got to be here if it's going to be effective. But one of the other things that really gets me to be in the moment is to be out in nature and see something spectacular. Whether it's you know looking at a rainbow, whether it's seeing a beautiful mountain, whether it's um, coming face-to-face -face with a bear, like I did a few weeks ago, you know, just different, yeah, black bear, look on Facebook, I'll tell you all about it if you need to know, but, you know, in spite of me wanting to chase the bear down, that was all inspiring, wow, that's a bear, look what God did, God created a bear that can kill me, but um, really wasn't focusing on that too much, sitting at the beach, looking at the ocean, watching a beautiful sunset, all of these things are things that in my life force me to slow down, force me to be in the moment, and force me to recognize that God is awesome and he can do so much more than I can ever even begin to fathom. So those things are important. And those enthronement psalms put us, I think, or put me in a better place to recognize those things as I read through them and sometimes recognize things where I'm seeing God's awesomeness where I might not otherwise always see God's awesomeness. And just as a side note, if you reflect back to the songs that were sung during the worship portion of the music portion of worship this morning all those in some way were sort of an enthronement type psalm they were thematic in talking about how awesome God is and how awesome creation is and how worthy he is of all of our worship so that is royal psalms and enthronement psalms now let's have some fun in precatory psalms just a quick show of hands has anyone before this morning heard the term imprecatory psalm Okay, there are a few. Dan, you knowing it does not surprise me in the least. And I didn't see who raised their hand back there, but that, there, there are like two or three hands raised. Imprecatory psalms invoke judgment, calamity, or curses upon one's enemies or those perceived as the enemies of God. Now remember, we said you can pray the psalms. Some of you are thinking, I have found my favorite psalms. 
that neighbor that doesn't do what the HOA says, I'm going to pray God's calamity and curses on him. That person that cut me off in traffic the other day, I know he's my enemy, so surely he's God's enemy. So I'm going to pray that he be punished, you know, for not, or my favorite, because I spend a lot of time living in South Carolina, that person did not use their turn signal. You know, things like that. But if you boil the imprecatory psalms down to what most people would consider to be their first impression of the imprecatory psalms are David basically talking to God and having a conversation that sounds a lot like this. God, I love you. God, you love me. God, they hate me. Kill them. That, that is what we see in this, and us in our human nature go, yeah, okay, God, we, we can get behind this because I don't like what they're doing, and if I don't like what they're doing, I'm sure you don't like what they're doing. So we might not say kill them, but there has to be something, God, you can do that would make their life miserable. That is not really what these psalms are all about. And we'll see that as we jump into this. So let's look at an imprecatory psalm. We'll see it in Psalm 59, verses 1 through 13. And this is going to be the largest chunk of Scripture we look at. And just listen to and look at the visual images that are painted in this psalm as David is talking to God about David's enemies and God's perceived enemies. First of all, deliver me from my enemies, my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who practice sin and save me from men of bloodshed. Sounds pretty calm so far, doesn't it? Let's keep going. Lord, look, they set an ambush for me. Powerful men attack me, but not because of any sin or rebellion of mine. For no fault of mine, they run and take up a position. Awake to help me and take notice. Now hold it just there for a second, Dale. I don't know because I don't know exactly what was going through David's mind at the time here. But doesn't it kind of sound like David saying to God, you know, they have no reason to be attacking me. God, I, I didn't do anything wrong here. And that's kind of how we approach things sometimes. You know, God, I don't understand why somebody would even think of saying or doing that to me because I don't make mistakes. I don't screw up like that. I'm not, I don't deserve somebody talking to me like that. So, you know, we, I don't know if that's exactly what we were experiencing in David's thought process here at the beginning, but it kind of seems like that a little way. Keep on going. Lord God of hosts, you are the God of Israel. Right, now, here's where we get to the good part. Rise up to punish all the nations. Do not show grace to any wicked traitors. Selah. We're not going to get into what Selah is, but it's basically just like a pause or rest, a dividing point. Uh, they return at evening, snarling like dogs and prowling around the city. That paints some pretty good visual image, doesn't it? Look, they spew from their mouths sharp words from their lips. For who, or, yeah, for who they say, will hear. But you laugh at them, Lord. You ridicule all the nations. I will keep watch for you, my strength, because God is my stronghold. My faithful God will come to meet me. God will let me look down on my adversaries. Now, here's the part I love. Do not kill them, otherwise my people will forget. By your power, make them homeless wanderers and bring them down. Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouths and the words of their lips, let them be caught in their pride. They utter curses and lies. Consume them in rage. Consume them until they are gone. Then people will know throughout the earth that God rules over Jacob. Selah. Okay, now, here's the thing I want us to take away from this part of the message today. First impressions are not always correct. 
it would be real easy to say, okay, I'm going to pray these psalms to get everybody else that I don't agree with cursed. You know, I want God to deal with them. Now, I want you to look at a picture real quick. How many of y'all have seen the picture of this bird? Anybody seen this picture of the bird before? Okay. Okay, what, what do you notice about the bird? Did you notice that the bird is not a bird? The bird is actually a black cat with its head tilted to the side. Eye, ear, not beak. If you look real closely, other eye. Sometimes things are not always as they appear. And please don't let this be the thing that you remember like the flashlight from last year. <laughs> I remember that cool bird cat picture you should have thrown up there, Eddie. Um, you know, but it does. And the thing about it is I know it's a cat. And I still look at it and see a bird half the time. But it's not. I promise you. Google it. Cat or crow cat picture. And you can go back and you can see the same one. You can blow it up. The more you lighten it the, when you start seeing the other eye. But I'm standing this close to it and it still looks like a freaking bird. Okay, when we look at these psalms that are imprecatory psalms, we need to hit the pause button. And it's important to note in this that if we don't know what we're dealing with, sometimes when we run up on an important passage, passage that we don't really understand, that we need to stop and pray. Remember I said that, that prayer is movable in that SOAP acronym? Okay, God, I've just sat here and read a passage about David asking you to kill people, to make them homeless wanderers, to basically eliminate them from the face of the earth, but make sure that their destruction is so horrible that your people remember that. What, what's going on here? You know, so I pray, God, show me what this means. Show me how this applies to my life, how I can use what I'm reading here and accurately apply it in a way that's going to bring me closer to you and make me a better witness to the people that I come in contact with. And the only way that's going to happen is by the Holy Spirit guiding us to a better, deeper, more clearer understanding of passages that we run up against sometimes that would be like this. Now, I want to stop for just a second and talk about how do we let the Holy Spirit guide us in a situation like this. Well, I firmly believe that when we pray and ask God to help us understand a passage of Scripture that as believers we have the Holy Spirit indwelling in us and as a result of that the Holy Spirit can speak into our hearts and help us just with our relationship with the Holy Spirit and God get a better understanding. But is that the way it always happens? Not necessarily. That's why we have things like biblical commentaries. You know, sometimes it means going and pulling a book down off the shelf and opening the book and, well, who really pulls books down off the shelf anymore? Sometimes it means searching, Googling biblical commentary on da-da-da, such a passage, and then looking at it. Make sure you're reading a good one because there's some crackpots out there that have written some stuff. But, you know, sometimes it means studying something else. Sometimes it means going to a believer that maybe you know is a little bit more mature in the faith. Uh, if you're wondering where you fit in that, go back and look at the Growing Pain series that we recently did here. But seek out the advice of more mature believers. Or, or sit down with somebody and just have a conversation. That, you know, somebody that is a believer, have a conversation about what you are reading and studying. I mean, think about it. Guys especially, and I, I'm sure women do this too, but when you get a group of guys together, we're going to talk about whatever our favorite sports and sports team is. We're going to talk about whatever our favorite activity is. We're going to talk about the weather. 
And if we're really brave and we know that everybody around us is pretty like-minded, we might talk about politics. If I know you think differently or you know I think differently, probably not going to bring that one up. But we'll talk about all manner of things. But how many times as a group of believers do we just get together, not, not, not necessarily in our life group or at you know, some sort of Bible study, but just sitting around over coffee and say, hey, I was reading this passage in Psalms and here's what I think it means, but I don't know that if that's really... What it is, you know, let's just talk about that. We don't do anywhere near enough of that. And I imagine if we did more of it, we as a body of Christ would be a whole lot stronger and better off for it. Why do we not do it? Embarrassed. Maybe we don't want to let other people think that maybe we don't have it all together. Folks, if you've listened to me talk for any period of time or been around me in any conversation, you know I don't have it all together. And I've gotten to the point that I don't even try to make it look like I've got it all together. You know, hopefully with my job, I have most of it together, but, you know, still make mistakes in that. But we as believers need to learn that there are times that we've got to hit the pause button and try to understand, are we looking at a crow or are we looking at a cat? And get a deeper way of coming to grips with what that really is. So... As we move forward with this, especially thinking about the imprecatory psalms, we've got to look at these passages and say, what are we seeing? You know, what was the psalmist seeing? And when we understand that, we start to see, especially in these imprecatory psalms, it wasn't so much about David wanting God to kill the enemies. It was that David understood that God is both sovereign and just. And if you understand the meaning of these two words... If God is going to be just, you better hope and pray he's sovereign. Because you can have a whole lot of problems with somebody thinking they're just if they're not sovereign. But if we're going to talk about that, then we've got to understand what this word sovereign or sovereignty means. And basically it means supreme freedom, or I'm sorry, supreme power and freedom from external control. Keep those last two words very much in the front of your mind, freedom from external control. Because I firmly believe that we as Americans do not have a very good understanding of what sovereignty is. Because when we start talking about sovereignty or a sovereign, we're generally talking about a king or a queen. And our government or our country itself was founded on the premise of getting rid of a king and queen. So, you know, maybe someone from England or, you know, wherever they still have monarchs understand sovereignty a little better. But... The king is the king. And you've probably seen the old movies, you know, off with their head. You know, if the king says off with your head, guess what's happening to your head? It's coming off because the king is king. And when we look at this, God is God. And fortunately, he is a benevolent sovereign. He is loving, he is kind, but he is also just. And we can be thankful that he is just because he is sovereign, so that we know his justice is going to be administered in a way that doesn't contradict his nature and doesn't operate in such a way that it's for his own selfish gain. And again, we could go deeper and deeper into that, but again, what David's not, David's not talking about kill everybody in this, trust me. And you go and look at all these imprecatory psalms, you see God is sovereign. God, you know what's best. God, you're going to deal with these people and these situations and these circumstances in whatever way lines up perfectly with 
your nature and your person. And that tells me God can always be trusted because he's going to administer holy justice as a result of him being sovereign. So now as we wind up today, let's start looking at some applications. I will tell you this. When you read a lot of the Psalms, you're not going to get that application about, oh, well, this is going to be the better way for me to witness to so-and-so. Or, you know, this is going to be the way I can deepen my understanding of such and such. No, a lot of these, especially the three type Psalms we look at today, deal more with gaining a better understanding of God. Now, that's going to hopefully affect all those other areas of how we deal with people and how we, you know, deal with situations and circumstances. But first application here, just as the psalmist recognizes God for who he is, we need to constantly strive to grow in our understanding of him and our understanding of his nature. Especially if, as I was talking about earlier, maybe you don't have the best fatherly relationship or, you know, any type of family dynamics because we as Christians are family. I'll be the first to tell you, I do not understand sibling relationships. I'm an only child. I know that comes as a shock, but I am an only child. And for the first few years that Donna and I were dating and married, there were just things about her relationship between her and her brother that I just did not understand. And I was talking with somebody yesterday about, you know, being one of six. Uh, and then a few days ago, you know, like one of ten I, I just can't imagine that. I, I'll be honest, I like being an only child. I'm not going to complain or lie to you and tell you that I miss having a brother or sister. No, I don't. I'm, you know, it, it was kind of good. When you walked in there on Christmas, guess who all the presents were for? <laughs> but flip side, when you walked in there and there was a sink of dirty dishes and they said do the dishes, guess who all the dishes were for? Okay, so it, it does swing both ways with that. But we really... I would challenge you to spend time each week maybe trying to learn something new about the nature of God or deepen your understanding of a certain aspect that you already have or know about the nature of God. Maybe this week you look more about what does it mean that God is sovereign? Why is that important to us as believers? Uh, why is it important that as sovereign God doesn't need any external control? That one I'm going to get to. Uh, second part of the application, though, it's easy to pray. Another thing to understand is it's easy to pray for God to judge others, but we have to understand that His rules for judgment apply to all of us equally. God's going to judge each and every individual by the exact same standard. And the baseline of that standard is whether or not there is any point in time that you can go back to in your life where you've accepted God's free gift of salvation and became a Christian, a Christ follower, a believer, where you came to that understanding that by grace are you saved through faith, not of work, lest any man should boast. God's the one that saves us. And if you've got that relationship, that's going to be the baseline for the judgment. Now, does that mean as a believer we escape judgment? No. God chastises those whom he loves. Uh, if you don't understand that, if you're a parent, yes, you do understand it. You love your child, and because of that love for your child, you discipline that child. Uh, you don't condone those bad activities. You say, hey, I love you, but this, is, this can't continue. We've got to make some changes here. And then the other flip side of that baseline is if God looks down and says, okay, 
there has not been a point in time in which you've accepted God's free gift of salvation, guess what? Then you are not a believer, you're not a Christ follower, you're not any of those words that we use for that. And there are going to be some consequences for that that are eternal consequences. But God is the one that judges. He judges justly. And as a closing note, he does not need our advice. You laugh. But how many times during our prayer time, during the week, do we tell God what we feel like God needs to do? Um, those of you that know <clears throat> excuse me, us in our situation, you know that Donna's mom passed away from pancreatic cancer a few months ago. And it's easy to pray God heal her. It's harder to pray God your will be done. But... God doesn't need my advice to tell him what was the best thing for that situation. And the, the comfort that I rest in now, even though going through that was very difficult, and I know more so for Donna than it was for me, is I know where she is right now. And she's happier than she's ever been. And I also know because of that commitment that I've made to Christ at some point in my life, I'll get to see her again. And it'll be wonderful. I'll get to see a bunch of people, and I'll probably get to see, see some people that I'm going to look at them and go, you're here? You know, but, oh, be honest, you're going to be just as shocked, too, about, you may be one of those people somebody walks up to and goes, you're here? Um, but, hey, folks, as believers, we're all in this together. We depend on each other, but more importantly, we depend on God. And the better we understand who he is, how he is, and how he wants to work in and through us to accomplish his will for our lives, the better off we will be in the long run. Does that mean we're going to be better off tomorrow? No. Does that mean we're going to be rich? No. But if we strive to be where he wants us to be every day, we can rest in the insurance that we are where we need to be regardless of whether we feel like it or not. Because he loves us. He cares about us, and he knows us better than we know ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us, and we thank you for the opportunity just to open up your word and to strive to understand better about who you are and how you work around us. And Father, we thank you for the beautiful creation you've given us. We're thankful that you are in control of every aspect of it, and nothing escapes your view. And I pray as we leave from this place today that you would just help us to allow you to work through us to accomplish your will, to introduce those around us to that absolute hope that we've come to know and love in you. In Christ's name we pray.